Smith. Philip Smith. AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. No one with AIDS has been cured. AIDS is now the leading cause of death among young people in this country. Brian Tedesco. We are not aliens from another planet, and it is both humiliating and degrading that we should have to stand here once again and try and to AIDS act up right back and AIDS act up right back and AIDS. When the world marked the first World AIDS Day 30 years ago this month, a diagnosis of HIV was a death sentence. But today, it's possible to live a long, healthy life while HIV positive, and it is conceivable that the epidemic itself will be history by the end of the next decade. For global health professionals, the HIV-AIDS fight offers a compelling model to emulate when targeting other hard-to-contain pandemics. If the international community exhibited the degree of coordination, commitment, and determination that it eventually brought to the fight against HIV, perhaps many other devastating diseases could also be beaten. But as my guest today argues, just because we have the science does not mean that we have the political will to use it. Elizabeth Radin is a lecturer in epidemiology and the technical director of the Population-Based HIV Impact Assessment Project at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And although she sees many parallels between the war on HIV and diseases like tuberculosis, she recognizes that replicating past successes will not be easy. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Greg. It's so good to have you on the phone today. I'm just curious, uh, where are you? I know you do a lot of work in Africa. Are you in New York today? So I'm coming to you today from my office at ICAP at Columbia University. We have a beautiful view of the Hudson River and the George Washington Bridge here, but that means we are also a bit close to the West Side Highway. So um, if you're hearing any sirens or noise in the background, I'm not actually in the midst of a public health emergency. It's just um, the course of business in New York City. Okay, so you're, you're not multitasking us and walking down the street at the same time. No. Okay. Well, it's wonderful to have you, as I said. Uh, we're recording this a few days before December 1st, which is World AIDS Day. And this year marks the 30th commemoration of that annual event. So let's start with a bold question, if we could. How many more years will we be marking this disease before it's eradicated? Well, that's an excellent question to be asking at this time, because we actually, in the last four or five years have developed a roadmap to bring HIV AIDS under control globally. And we've also charted remarkable progress towards those goals. And let me explain what that is. So the HIV virus is um, a virus that can be treated and controlled with medication, but it can't be cured. Now, what the treatment does is it reduces the total amount of virus that a person living with HIV has circulating in their body. This has two critical advantages, the first being that the person living with HIV is much less likely to become sick or to die from the virus when that virus is reduced in their body or suppressed. And secondly, they're also much less likely to transmit. So by providing large-scale treatment to people living with HIV, we can reduce both mortality as well as new infections, which is the definition of epidemic control. Now, the question is, 
to what degree do we need to do that? And what actually does the course to epidemic control look like? So in 2014, the uh, United Nations Joint Program on, on AIDS, or UN AIDS, established the 90-90-90 targets. And that's really our roadmap. The 90-90-90 targets stand for three critical goals. The first being that 90% of people living with HIV are diagnosed or know their status as being HIV positive. The second being that 90% of those people who know their HIV positive status are on treatment. And the third being that 90% of people on treatment are virally suppressed or that treatment is effectively reducing the amount of virus in their body. Now, when we look at the mathematical models, they tell us that if we can achieve those goals by 2020 and sustain them until 2030, we'll see a decline in new infections that's so substantial on the order of 80 and 90% that we will actually meet that definition of epidemic control. Now, give us an overview of some of the countries uh, that you've been working in uh, and where those countries stand in, uh, in meeting those targets that you just defined, those 90-90-90 targets. Right. So in the past four years, I've had the really unique opportunity to work on a project here at ICAP at Columbia University, uh, funded through the, the U.S. government's uh, PEPFAR program, which is the U.S. government's Global AIDS Response Program, um, and collaborate with ministries of health in the countries that are most heavily affected by HIV-AIDS to do really the largest scale, most in-depth studies of the current status of, of the HIV epidemic that have been conducted. Uh, to date, we've studied about 300,000 people um, in over a dozen countries uh, in Africa. And what we found has been, has been really remarkable. The, the progress towards achieving the 90-90-90 has um, surpassed even um, kind of our best hopes. And so mm -hmm. we've seen in countries like uh, Swaziland, Namibia, um, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Uganda, really substantial progress towards meeting those 90-90-90 targets such that the PEPFAR program announced yesterday they believe 13 countries are currently on track to meet those 90-90-90 goals by 2020. Hmm. Can you get into some of the specific tactics and strategies that have proved most effective in, in the countries that you just mentioned? Because most of these countries, uh, I, would, I would assume, are, are somewhat resource-strained when it comes to their health care abilities. Absolutely. And, and this has been, um, was one of the critical challenges and really something that was initially daunting in um, trying to treat HIV-AIDS globally. There are, are a number of factors that have been critical, but I'll try to hit on a few of the key ones here. I think certainly um, one key aspect has been a health system strengthening approach uh, in combination with what we call a public health approach. So health system strengthening is, is really about reinforcing all components of the health system, including the health workforce, um, health training systems, uh, the ability to logistic systems, the ability to procure and stock and supply uh, medications and, and diagnostic um, commodities that are needed for an appropriate response, um, laboratory capacity to diagnose people and monitor people in an ongoing way. 
um, within that, a, a critical approach has also been a public health approach of designing robust but straightforward protocols for testing and treatment. That has um, critically allowed some of the work of, of treating HIV to shift from very, very, very scarce medical doctors to um, clinical officers and nurses and midwives and, and even community health workers. Um, mm. So that's all on the health system side. Um, at the same time, critically, the communities of people living with HIV and communities affected by HIV have been engaged and um, continue to be engaged. And, you know, we can, can only um, aspire to, to have them play an even more central role. And, and that's critical in a number of respects. I want AIDS to get cured because if I get it, I want to beat it. So let's take some of those innovative ideas and, and, and models that we've just talked about and try to apply them as you, as you did in, in your recent uh, Project Syndicate piece to other illnesses um, uh, that are chronic, like specifically tuberculosis and, and non-communicable diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. How does the model uh, that worked for HIV apply to these illnesses? Well, so I think that there are a number of, of learnings we can take from HIV-AIDS Certainly one being that combination of a, a public health approach, a core package of services that allows care to be efficiently provided to a, a rapidly growing number of people, combined with differentiated care, which allows us to kind of triage patients and provide more flexible options to stable patients. So provide potentially an opportunity to have fewer contacts with the health system um, and to refocus health system resources on new cases and, and complicated cases. Hmm. Certainly, if we think about um, a global level and how HIV AIDS has, has made progress at a global level, having that roadmap of the 90-90-90, having some global agreement and really a galvanized global effort around those three objective, very clear goals has been critical. Um, the, in addition to that, the goals actually allow us to, to steer the programming by telling us where are the gaps. Um, we can envision a scenario where something similar, uh, where we have targets set not just for an overall outcome like reducing mortality, but actually what are the interim steps that we need to meet to get to those um, improvements in health and mortality reductions along that cascade of care. We can envision something for, um, for example, diabetes, where we understand what, what proportion of, of total people living with diabetes have been diagnosed, what proportion are on effective treatment, and what proportion are being effectively managed such that, that they're not going to be sick, and using such goals to, to steer programs within other disease areas as we have within HIV-AIDS. Yeah. You know, there's another there's another element here that I wanted to to ask you and to explore a bit. You know, with HIV uh, and and also with NCDs, these illnesses are often associated, whether incorrectly or not, with lifestyle choices. How has the perception of illness shaped health policy? And I wonder how that public perception might influence programs to fight NCDs and and potentially even TB. 
Right. It's um, it's an excellent question. I mean, certainly, HIV/AIDS has um, has been a unique case where the perception that uh, HIV status is is linked to lifestyle choices um, really fed into the stigma associated with the disease um, really from from the first days that it was identified. Uh, and what we certainly don't find is helpful from a public health perspective is to have a disease stigmatized, to have uh, a condition where the social ramifications of being diagnosed are so severe that people are avoiding testing and therefore missing out on, on treatment that at this point is is really life-saving um, because of uh, you know the this kind of social factors around it so we certainly would want to avoid going down that same yeah. road by characterizing NCDs as a lifestyle choice mm, um, mm. as opposed to you know a, a medical condition which um, for which there's effective prevention there's effective diagnosis for which it's important to be diagnosed and the path to good health is is really through greater um, knowledge of health status I think sure. for this sure. World AIDS Day UN AIDS has it adopted the um, the mantra of of knowledge is power and that's certainly the opposite of of stigma and really where the future is for HIV AIDS and and certainly other disease areas interestingly um, we saw a, a sort of dramatic shift in the U.S. position on this uh, under the Bush administration in the early 2000s when um, they really drove for a substantial U.S. global investment in um, fighting AIDS. And, and that was a really interesting time in our history. It brought together some unlikely or unusual collaborators on the American political spectrum. On the, on the one hand, you know, you had the, the Bush administration that was driving for this. You had um, an evangelical movement that was particularly concerned with the moral injustice of children and infants uh, yeah. in Africa becoming infected with HIV. Um, and then you had your um, kind of more classically liberal, uh, internationalist, multilateral advocates who were also in, in favor of this engagement. Um, and really, it's, it's one of the things that have, has allowed the U.S. Uh, contribution to the global AIDS response to be so robu robust and so enduring is that it actually has been um, bipartisan and um, very heterogeneously supported. You know, another element, though, that's important to remember in the AIDS fight has been advocacy. And we can all remember seeing huge rallies staged by people living with and affected by HIV. I remember in the 1980s, and in 1988, I believe, AIDS activists even seized control of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, demanding access to cheaper drugs. Why do you think we haven't seen the same level of engagement by those affected by TB and NCDs as we've seen by those affected by AIDS and HIV? I think TB and NCDs are, are probably different cases. Um, in terms of 
TB, there, there certainly is some excellent activism and, and advocacy work ongoing. Um, I, you know, perhaps it's uh, a difference of, of just kind of what gets recognized and, and where the, bur the greatest burden of disease sits, whether it's um, there's substantial outbreaks in, in uh, high-income countries versus low- and middle-income countries. Um, in terms of NCDs, um, things like cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes, um, we haven't seen that emerge as much as an, as an identity. I, and maybe, as you said, that's, that's partly because um, stigma is less, but even though, even though we haven't seen that thus far, um, it's, it's certainly a, a um, critical health issue that, mm. um, that we need to address, accounting for 71% of, of deaths globally and, and with the um, burden of, of premature deaths, so adults between the ages of 30 and 70, um, sitting 85% in, in low and middle income countries. I think one of the fallacies of NCDs is that this is a, a disease of affluence and it's a disease of um, very old people and mm -hmm. uh, that's not necessarily on point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I recall uh, reading a comment by, I believe, the editor of The Lancet uh, a couple of years ago who said something to the effect of the NCD community needs an electric shock to its semi-comatose soul um, and wondering where that shock comes from if it doesn't come from the, piece, the people suffering from NCDs themselves. Right. Um, I think one of, the, one of the critical things is to demonstrate a clear roadmap and, and demonstrate progress. I, I do wonder if just the idea that it you know, seems daunting to provide ongoing care in, in low and middle income contexts and, um, you know, for people who maybe aren't as aware the degree to which HIV AIDS has, has one, been, um, been treated globally and two, really has become um, a chronic illness. You know, it, it, it just sort of seems like something too big and nebulous to take on and that therefore identifying clear strategies and benchmarking progress um, and demonstrating what really feasibly and affordably can be done um, could help to, to energize some of that, that movement. Mm -hmm. Well, let's bring the conversation then kind of full circle from, from the specifics of policy uh, to some of the challenges of politics. In September, and, and this is another piece that you've you've pointed out, um, high-level UN meetings on both TB uh, and ending NCDs were held uh, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, suggesting that there is strong political support for dealing with these global health threats. At the same time, we have the developed countries and, and historic supporters of these programs, like the United States, threatening to slash funding uh, for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, uh, that, that you've mentioned, and continuing to, to fail to fill key health-related positions in their administrations. How do we ensure uh, on, on this 30th anniversary uh, of World AIDS Day that, that global commitments to dealing with public health priorities like HIV AIDS, like TB, like NCDs are fulfilled in an era of clear growing isolationism politically? Mm -hmm. um, so 
it's a couple things, and it's a page that we can take out of that early activist playbook. Um, we need accurate information, so accurate information about um, the diseases themselves, about what can be done, about um, really the, the effectiveness and, and affordability of potential solutions, um, and then we need engagement. Uh, so the majority of Americans do support a uh, major or leading role for the U.S. In, um, in global health. And at the same time, we see that uh, there are, are ongoing potential threats to the U.S. global health investment. Um, as you've mentioned, there have been budgets that have gone forward with uh, proposed reductions to PEPFAR that's actually been um, rejected by, by Congress. Uh, again, kind of drawing on that bipartisan support. Um, there are also currently proposed cuts to the overall global health assistance budget in the U.S. Um, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes forward towards 2019. But it's, it's critical that we have um, a accurately informed populace and an engaged populace, one that says, you know, this is something important to us and, and makes that clear to their elected representatives. Um, we obviously just had an election here in the U.S. where we had um, high voter turnout by U.S. standards, and, and we're seeing um, a high level of political engagement. We need to maintain that and, and make sure that people are making their voices heard, that uh, they know solutions exist, and they want, um, they want us to be, to be a part of supporting that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel for so many of these global pandemics. And yet, we've entered this era in which policymakers continue to argue that protectionism is good for the world, or at least in terms uh, of being good for business and trade. But clearly, an isolationist approach doesn't really work for global public health. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can see out of the UK today that maybe there's some rethinking about whether it's even good for um, business and, and trade in the economy, <laughs> um, but it certainly isn't good for, for public health. The idea that um, health issues, be they infectious disease outbreaks or um, chronic conditions or population level factors like maternal and child health, the idea that, that that's somebody else's problem and um, it won't affect us and, you know, it's, it's not really uh, our concern is, is not just morally problematic, it's um, dangerously misguided. Uh, we saw, you know, three, four years ago with the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa, just how quickly a deadly virus can make its way from a remote village in Guinea to the subway in New York City. Um, I think, you know, on a more fundamental side, um, the U.S. has been a, a leader in global health. There has been substantial investment in global health from other high-income countries, including in Europe. Um, and there is a, a, a value in that. It, it's aligned with values, and it's also aligned with our interests. Well, I think it's hard to argue with that. So I, I think that we can probably leave it there uh, as, a, as an important reminder of the many lessons learned over the, the, the last few decades of, of work on the HIV-AIDS pandemic and how those can be applied to 
illnesses like TB and NCDs. So thank you very much for your time today, Elizabeth. I, I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks a lot. That was Elizabeth Radin, a lecturer in epidemiology and the technical director of the Population-Based HIV Impact Assessment Project at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. 